All right, let, let, me, uh, let, let me just talk to you for just a second. This isn't uh, on your study sheet. Everybody can relax for just a second, and uh, you don't have to be you know, checking everything out. But, you know, we've, we've been at this now in the book of Revelation for, for almost a year. Uh, you can see at the top of your page there. This is the 49th week that we've been just hammering away at this, uh, what it has to be, the most intriguing book in the entire Bible. And we, we've got to be real careful, though, folks. We've got to be real careful that we don't plop ourselves down in here every week and want to be intrigued by this thing and, and want to be able to dissect the book of Revelation so we can go out of here and, you know, have what people would view as the most difficult book of the Bible, and we got it down. It, it, listen, if that's what we're doing, then we ought, to just, we ought to just fall on our face right now before God, get our hearts right, and go out and mow the lawn or do something that's profitable. That's not going to profit us. Not, not one little bit. The whole purpose of this is so that we can begin to get in our mind's eye a vision of the future. We, we tend to be so caught up with life and, and, and what's gone on in the last 168 hours of our life is what seems like it is so important. We've been at our jobs and, and we've been working around the house and we've been doing all of this, this stuff that when, when that trumpet sounds and Jesus has come back, you know what? It ain't going to make one little bit of difference. And so what this study does for us is it begins to open our eyes to give us an eternal perspective about life right now so that we can keep our focus. Jesus told us very specifically, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And so what this time is all about is us getting a, a heavenly perspective about life right now. Now, we're also dealing with a period of time to where there's a lot of confusion about the book of Revelation. There, quite honestly, there are very many cults that have arisen out of the very chapter that we're dealing with in the book of Revelation this morning, Revelation chapter 7. And so it's important for us to be able to come in here and to be able to dissect the book of Revelation and understand doctrinally exactly what it's talking about so that we don't get swept into some movement that is going to end up teaching false doctrine and be able to condemn people to hell. So that's important. But there's also a group of people that come in here every week who are, are, are people that for whatever reason you find yourself here this morning. Maybe, maybe a friend invited you. Maybe, maybe somebody's been hounding you like crazy and to get them off your back, you finally, you finally showed up to just shut them up. But you know what? For whatever reason, you're here this morning. And, and beyond you being intrigued this morning by what the book of Revelation is, is saying, I, I want you to understand that what God is really wanting to say to you is that he loves you and he wants to have a personal relationship with you and the Bible says that it is by the foolishness of preaching that people are saved and I want you to understand right from the very beginning and we make no bones about the fact of why we're preaching the Word of God here 
we're doing this so that God can take this, what is from man's perspective, a foolish exercise. And he can use it to bring people to himself. And so this morning as we, we go into this, uh, I, I want you to listen to what the Spirit of God is saying. And I know that it's a little confuse, confusing when you're, you're, you're hearing the voice of a man, but there's hundreds of folks that are all around you this morning that would give witness of the fact that we listened to a man preach the Bible one day, or somebody shared it with us personally one day, and beyond what we were hearing humanly, the God of this universe was speaking to our hearts about a relationship with him. And that's, that's our, our prayer and our desire for you this morning. So we're in Revelation chapter 7 right now. In Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, the event that we are now as the church of Jesus Christ anticipating the rapture of the church takes place in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. The rest of chapter 4 deals with what is taking place in heaven immediately after the rapture of the church. And the same thing continues as we get into chapter 5. You'll notice in verse 1 that John saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. In chapter 6, that seven-sealed book begins to be opened. And as it does... What is taking place on the earth is the tribulation period begins to unfold. And we've worked our way all the way through chapter 6. We've come through the tribulation period for the first time. And then we came to chapter 7. And we began to see that chapter 7 forms a parenthesis. And the events that are detailed for us in Revelation chapter 7 actually are taking place back in chapter 6. It's just a little aside where he's beginning to show us other things that were taking place while those six seals in Revelation chapter 6 were being opened. And chapter 7 has to do with two very important groups of people. First of all, the 144,000 sealed Jews. And we took four solid weeks to try to make our way through those eight verses there, again, because I just mentioned a few minutes ago. There are at least four major American cults that try to read themselves into those eight verses and by doing so, condemn their souls to an eternal hell without God because they are not that group of people. So we very cautiously and very carefully and very meticulously tried to make our way through those eight verses. And now we're to the second group of, of folks that also are a matter of confusion as to who they actually are, this numberless multitude of saved Gentiles. And one of the things that helps us to identify specifically who this group actually is, is when they were saved. When they were saved, and that's letter A on your outline. When they were saved. And you see, a lot of people try to link this multitude that, that John saw here in, in, in Revelation chapter 7. A lot of folks try to link these people to the church age saints that he saw back in chapter 4 and in chapter 5. But if you'll begin to compare the two groups, it becomes more than obvious that they aren't the same. There are some major contrasts. First of all, we saw back in chapter 3 and verse 10 that the Lord Jesus Christ promised that the church would be kept 
from the tribulation period. But you'll notice here in chapter 7, in the middle of verse 14, it says that these are they which came out of great tribulation. So now, now make sure that you're tracking with me right now. Okay? See, we're dealing here in Revelation chapter 7 with a totally different dispensation or a totally different period of time. One, back in chapter 4 and 5, that, those are church age saints. We covered that uh, months ago now. Those are church age saints. The ones we're dealing with here are those that have come out of the great tribulation. They're tribulation saints. Something else as we're contrasting these. We saw, uh, or John saw, the, the church around the throne back in chapter 4 and verse 4. And when he saw them, they were clothed in white raiment. But you'll notice at the end of verse 9 of Revelation 7, that these saints are clothed with white robes. It's not the same. In Revelation chapter 4 and verse 4, the church age saints sit on seats round about the throne. And you see here in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9 that these saints are standing before the throne. The church age saints in Revelation 4, 4 have crowns of gold on their heads. But if you check out Revelation chapter 7, what you find is that these saints have no crowns. The saints from the church age, when John saw them in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 8, they had harps and golden vials. The saints in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9 had palms in their hands. The church age saints in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9 sing a new song. And these in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 10 cry with a loud voice. The church age saints are called kings and priests in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 10 and they reign with him while these in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 15 it says they serve him day and night. So you see these, these groups, they're different. One multitude is saved in the church age, and one of them is saved in the tribulation period, the great tribulation specifically, which Jesus defines for us in Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 to 21, as the last three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation. Okay? So the last three and a half years, the tribulation is seven years long, the last three and a half years, Jesus defines for us as the great tribulation. So what we have here in Revelation chapter 7 is we have the 144,000 who are sealed in the first three and a half years, and then this multitude of tribulation saints is saved in the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. And that's why verse 9 begins with, look at it, after this, after this, okay, after what? After the 144,000 Jewish witnesses are sealed, right? That's what the first eight verses are all about. Look back in verse 2. The angel 
ascending out of the east said that the four angels, back in verse 1, on the four corners of the earth, they were to hold the judgment of the four winds, verse 3 says, until, until what? Until the 144,000 had been sealed. So, this group of 144,000 were sealed in the first eight verses of chapter 7, in the first three and a half years of the tribulation period before the actual judgment of God began to blow upon the earth. And then comes verse 9, after this, after the sealing of the 144,000, and notice here the contrast of these sealed Jews in verses 1 through 8 with these saved Gentiles in verses 9 through 17. First of all, you'll remember that the number, of course, of the sealed Jews was a very specific number. 144,000, not one more and not one less. 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes. 12,000 times 12, 144,000, a very specific number. But as to the number of the, the, this other group that John sees here in verses 9 through 17, it says that the number of this multitude was countless or numberless. He says in verse 9 that he beheld a great multitude which no man could number. I mean, it's an absolutely incredible mass of, of humanity. And you, you'll, you'll remember that the 144,000 who were sealed back in verse 4 of chapter 7, they were all of one nationality, right? Every single one of them was a Jew from the nation of Israel. But as to the nationality of this group, John says in verse 9 that they were of all nations. And when it says all nations there, you know what it means? It means all nations. Every single one of them. There isn't one of them that's left out. All nations, all kindreds, he says, and all people, and all tongues. I mean, folks, there are people there out of every people group in the entire world. Yeah, I mean, even in the, the wilds of the, the most remote jungle on the earth, there's going to be representative in heaven from those, even those groups of people. And we saw last week just how it is or how it could be that 144,000 of these sealed Jews, how, how it could it be that they're going to make their way in a three-and-a-half-year period. I mean, just, you know, logistically, look, look at this thing. How is 144,000 people going to invade every culture on the planet, every single people group, on every nation, no matter where it is on the planet, how in the world are they going to be able to get to all of these people and invade that culture and learn their language so that they can give them the gospel? And what we began to see is that's going to be able to be accomplished because the prophecy of Joel chapter 2 that began to be fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, that prophecy is going to pick back up again during the tribulation period. And the 144,000 during this period of time are going to possess the biblical gift of speaking in tongues where they will open their mouth to speak and having never studied the language, 
they will open their mouth, the Holy Spirit of God will take over, and the audience that is listening to them will hear them proclaim the gospel in their own language, just like they did when the biblical gift was being exercised on the day of Pentecost. And what we saw is that this group of people and, and what we just described there will be the fulfillment of the prophecy that Jesus made in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 14 when he said this, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world for a witness unto, you know the rest of it, all nations. And that's going to take place, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, before his second coming, before he comes back to this planet to set up his millennial kingdom. And you see, that's how people from every tongue and nation and, and people and kindred all over the earth, that's how they will hear. Because of the 144,000 fulfilling the prophecy of Joel chapter 2 that began to be fulfilled on the day of Pentecost was put on hold because the Jews rejected their Messiah formally with the stoning of Stephen. And that's how it's going to happen. They will fulfill that prophecy and preach the gospel in every single nation on the earth. And then as to their nature, the 144,000, you remember, they're going to be saved like the Apostle Paul was saved. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 8, speaking of his conversion, what Paul said is that he was born as one out of due time. In other words, he had a premature birth. And he is going to be the forerunner, or he is a picture of the salvation of this 144,000. And you'll remember what Paul's salvation was all about. And if you look at that, it's going to be the same exact way with this 144,000. And what's going to take place is just like it did with Paul, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to reveal himself to this 144,000 personally. Their blinded eyes will be open to who he is. They will call upon his name and they will be saved to be his witnesses and they will receive the seal of the living God on their foreheads which Revelation chapter 14 and verse 1 defines as the name of the Father in their forehead, or the name of Jehovah. And we talked about the fact how that mark is going to mark them as God's personal possession. It will guarantee them God's personal protection. It's going to also, by that seal, through that, they will fulfill God's personal purpose. But now, the nature of the testimony of this multitude that we're talking about here in verses 9 through 17 is something entirely different than that group of people that we just talked about there. I showed you the nature of how they're saved and, and who this group is there in the first eight verses. Didn't have room to put it in the little box on that other side of your study sheet. So now understand, this is the nature of this group of saved Gentiles. And we mentioned just a minute ago that this group now, now make sure that you got this, this group that we're talking about here in verses 9 through 17 is a group of people that will be saved as the result of the ministry of the 144,000. They're going to be saved by the ministry of the 144,000. But now understand this. 
you got this 144,000 and they will be sealed they'll receive the seal of the living God but this group of people that we're talking about in verses 9 through 17 they will not receive the seal of the living God that the 144,000 received and remember now that seal guaranteed them the personal protection of God during the tribulation period and something else okay this group of people that we're talking about this multitude of saved Gentiles will not receive the sealing of the Holy Spirit that we receive as believers in the church age and of course that sealing is what guarantees us our the, the eternal security of our salvation okay now to make sure that you understand this okay the, the, the day that that you and I call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to save us what the Bible teaches is that we were placed in Christ and like we saw last week once we are in him Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14 teach us that we once we're in Christ we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise as a guarantee that we cannot lose our salvation now listen once you're sealed buddy you're sealed now a lot of folks wrestle with, with that whole deal and one of the reasons that they wrestle is they look at people who profess with their mouth that they know him but in works they deny him as Paul talked about to Titus and people get all freaked out because this guy's over here claiming he's eternally secure and he lives like hell and the devil now let me promise you something that guy that you're looking at that's living like hell and the devil he ain't gonna lose his salvation the reason he ain't gonna lose it is because he ain't got it but buddy once you're in Christ and you're genuinely in him you ain't getting out because Ephesians 1 13 and 14 says you have been sealed and in the church age in the dispensation of grace as Paul called it right there in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 10 if you're genuinely saved and are placed into Christ you're sealed and you couldn't get out if you wanted to and if you ever did want to what it would show you is that you never really were saved or sealed in the first place so you see I mean hey this is not this is not tough stuff is it I mean it's just just real simple but understand now this group that we're talking about here in Revelation chapter 7 and a lot of people don't know this now so don't assume anything this group of people that we're talking about here in verses 9 through 17 this is not a sealed group people who receive the gospel being preached by the 144,000 during the tribulation period do have the ability to lose their salvation now I'll show you that in just just a minute but but let me just say this I promise you if you're gonna have somebody that is gonna tell you that you can lose your salvation in the church age before you even tell me what reference they took you to I can already tell you something about the reference I mean before I even know what it is I can already tell you something about it it's gonna be in one of the books written to Jews it's gonna be in the Gospel of Matthew the gospel that was written 
to the Jews, or it'll be in the book of James, which the very first verse lets you know that it was written to the who? The twelve tribes, or it'll be the book of Hebrews. And obviously, it doesn't take a rocket scientist or a, 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 a seminary scholar to know who the book of Hebrews was written to, right? It was written to who, class? Hebrews. Man, you guys are sharp. But you know what? Before you ever tell me the reference, I can tell you something else about it. Not only is it going to be a book written to Jews, I can already tell you what the context is going to be too. It is always going to be prophetically applied to the tribulation period. Every single time. Now let me take you to a classic example of this in Matthew chapter 24 which is a, a, a chapter that, man, I'm telling you, once you, if you know the context, this is not tough. But I'm telling you, a lot of you people, you, you get all freaked out when people start, you know, telling you you can lose your salvation, and invariably they're going to take you here. Matthew 24. Now, if you haven't been here for the last several months, there's no doubt about the context of Matthew chapter 24. That's set in verse 3 where the disciples asked the Lord to give them the signs of his second coming and his answer to their question, what he does in answering this thing, is he walks them through the six major signs that precede his second coming, all of which will take place during the tribulation period, and which, strangely enough and coincidentally enough, just happened to be the same exact signs that you see in Revelation chapter 6 that when the six seals are opened it is the same exact six signs that Jesus detailed for us right here in Matthew chapter 24 and in the same exact order see coincidence right so the context of Matthew chapter 24 is obviously the tribulation period now look at verse 14 we just talked about it just a minute ago where he said that the gospel would be preached in all the world. Now, when is that, has that been fulfilled in the church age, folks? Nope. And guess what? It ain't going to be either. Because the church is like a stinking dead possum in the road right now. With all four legs just up, and it doesn't have a clue as to what it's supposed to be doing. I mean, there's people groups all over this world that still have not even heard the two words Jesus Christ, much less had an opportunity to hear the gospel preached. But, but he said in, in verse 14, the gospel would be preached in all the world, and we saw how that will be fulfilled by the 144,000. Look back at verse, thir verse 13. Here it is. But he that shall endure unto the end the same shall be saved. Okay, now, just tell me, how many times has that verse been used by people trying to prove that a Christian in the church age can lose their salvation when, quite honestly, there isn't a Christian in the church age within 60 chapters of this verse? Okay, the... The group that Jesus is talking about in verse 13 is the group that we're talking about in Revelation chapter 7 this morning. You see that? 
the tribulation period. And yes, this group of people will have one of the 144,000 witness to them, and obviously they will believe the message, but only those who endure unto the end will be saved. You say, well, is that the, the end of their life, or is that the end of the tribulation period? The answer is yes. And maybe even more specifically, the answer is whichever comes first. Whichever comes first. But, but as we'll see this morning, this numberless multitude that John sees in Revelation 7, I want you to turn back there. This numberless multitude that John has seen here, now, now, now listen and work with me, okay? They all received the gospel of the kingdom that was preached by the 144,000, but they all sealed their testimony with their own blood. You, you see, this group is the same group that we saw back in chapter 6 and verse 9 in the opening of the fifth seal. Remember, chapter 7 is a parenthesis. This group of people we're talking about, they're in verse 9 of chapter 6. Those who were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Because you see, now, now understand this, during the reign of the Antichrist, every single person on this planet is going to be required to take a mark. It is what is called the mark of the beast in the Bible, or the infamous 666 that will be marked in the foreheads of every person on this planet. Okay, But you got this group of 144,000, and they've already got a mark in their forehead, right? It's the mark of the living God. It's the mark of the name of, of God. They're sealed. It's a done deal. But then you've got this other group of people from every people group in the world who have responded to the, the preaching of this 144,000. They've, they've come and they've preached the gospel to them. And there's a group of people that they will receive that message. But they aren't sealed with the seal of the living God that the 144,000 receive. They're not sealed with the Holy Spirit of God that those of us in the church age are, are, are sealed with. So when it comes down in that tribulation period... When it comes time for them to be marked by the Antichrist, and according to what we find out in Revelation chapter 13, you've got to receive that mark during the tribulation period if you intend on buying or selling anything. And if you refuse that mark during the tribulation period, not only can you not eat, but according to what we find in Revelation chapter 21, you'll have your head chopped off. And you still won't eat, right? But anyway, you slice it. You die. Oh. <laughs> That's gold, man. See, I, I would have I gone right over that, but y'all are sick. You're sick-minded people, man. Okay, 
I'll try to clean up my act just a little bit here. Okay, so you see it comes down to you got to receive this mark. But if you receive that mark, now listen, they've already responded to the preaching of the 144,000. Yes, I believe. But if they take that mark, understand, they cannot be saved. They can't. Well, they believe. Different group of people. It's not you. The day you called upon the name of the Lord to save you, you were sealed. They're not sealed. Okay, so they, 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 hear, they hear this message, and, and listen, once they take that mark, uh, they can pray whatever they prayed that day that they heard the preaching of the 144,000. They can pray it until they're blue in the face. But once they've received that mark, they have sealed their eternal destiny. That mark has, has sealed it, and they cannot be saved. You see, that group of people must endure to the end. And buddy, I'm telling you, there's plenty to endure. But you see, that's why when John sees them, look in chapter 7 of Revelation and verse 9, that's why when John sees them, that's why he sees them the way that he does, clothed, with white robes and palms in their hands. You see, now both of those things have to do with them having victoriously met the requirement of enduring to the end. Okay, let's talk about the white robes. We've already seen in chapter 6 and, and verse 11 that the white robes were given to them because of their end. What was their end? The fact that they were martyred. Okay, we won't take the time to, to, to go over there again, but if you check out Revelation chapter 19 and verse 8, it, what it says is that the fine linen, that fine white linen of which these robes are made, anybody remember what it says that that white linen is? It is the righteousness of saints. It's the righteousness of saints. Now, now listen. The robes have to do with works after salvation and not the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. Okay, now, let me clarify what I'm, what I'm talking about here. You see, in the church age, a Christian's righteousness is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. We have been made the righteousness of God in Him. Who's Him? It's Christ, right? Our righteousness is the Lord Jesus Christ, but our white raiment is our own righteousness. Uh, the white raiment that we will wear is something that we will earn after we're saved. It is the righteousness of saints. Now understand, our salvation is not conditioned upon our works. But our white raiment is. But there's a difference now. Okay, now, now you're going to have to really track with me here. There's a difference with this group here in Revelation chapter 7. 
Look down in verse 14. One of the elders is explaining to John who this numberless multitude is that he's, he's seen. And look at what he says. He says, these are they which came out of great tribulation. Okay, again, a different dispensation. And watch this now. And have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now you see there's a difference. Now look at verse 14 again. It isn't that they were saved by the blood of the Lamb. Is that what verse 14 says? And it isn't that they were washed in the blood of the Lamb. Again, is that what verse 14 says? No. It says they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, look, look back at chapter 1 for a minute. Revelation chapter 1, and look at the last sentence of verse 5. You see, now this is what is true of us. Are you at a tribulation saint? Nope. Okay, now watch what he says is true of us. The last sentence in verse 5, John says, Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. You see, he washed us from our sins in his blood, not our robes. He washed us. You see, they're, they're different. You say, well, uh, I don't see any difference. Yeah, you do. I mean, it's right there. There are two different sets of words that are used here in two different places, referring to two different sets of people in two different periods of time. You see, church-age saints, now listen, church-age saints are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin, and when we receive the Lord Jesus Christ, we are declared righteousness because we are in him okay and he is our righteousness and we are saved we are sealed and we are secure for all eternity and our works verify our profession okay if you really got it and you're really saved sealed and secure everybody's going to know it okay that's church age saints the tribulation saints now listen they're also saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ because according to Acts chapter 4 and verse 12 there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved the book of Hebrews teaches us that without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin so th these people in the tribulation period will be saved by the same blood that we're saved by, but the difference is in how it's applied. His blood is applied to us the moment that we call upon His name. But the blood of the Lamb is applied in the salvation of this group as they receive the gospel message of the 144,000 and then, through the remainder of the tribulation period, 
through their endurance and through their steadfastness, they come through the great tribulation that lasts three and a half years without receiving the mark of the beast. And at that point, their robes are washed in the blood of the Lamb. You got that? Hello? You hear? Okay, so the white robes that John says that they were wearing are indicative of the fact that they endured to the end. They made it. And the palms that they're holding in their hands in, in verse 9 of chapter 7 are indicative of the same thing. Uh, there's three other times that you find palm branches in the Bible. Once is in Leviticus 23 and verse 40. Another time in Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 15. Once in John chapter 12 and verse 13. And every time you see palm branches, they are used to express rejoicing and victory. Rejoicing and victory. And in light of that, I think it's more than clear why they'd be holding palm branches. Now think about it. Why, why are they holding palm branches? You know what they're doing? They're rejoicing over the victory of having endured to the end. You see that? So there, it's a different group of people saved in a, in a different way than you and I are saved. But now let me just talk to you for just a second, okay? Some of you really need to do, you need to do some homework on your salvation. And I'm just trying to be gut honest with you. I'm not trying to freak you out, but I do think you need to, to just start dealing with the facts. A lot of you claim that you're saved. But you have no works in your life. Now listen, you can't be saved by your works. But if you're really saved, you'll work. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. You know what? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And we want to stop there and claim our eternal security, don't we? And, verse 10, and we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works if you got it everyone's gonna know it have you ever seen that over in Titus chapter 3 why don't you cruise over there real quick not that we have time but you know what we've got to have time for some of you folks I'm telling you I, I, a lot of you are claiming that you're eternally secure and I, I don't know where you go in the Bible to get it I, I really don't I mean the Bible teaches if you're saved you're sealed you're secure but there's evidence and I don't know really quite honestly where, where you get the evidence okay look at this verse 4 of Titus 3 but after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared here it is, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, 
that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now watch this, okay? Now that's where, that's where we stopped memorizing verse 8. This is a faithful saying. And these things I will that thou affirm constantly that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. Verse 4, the works ain't going to save you. Verse 8, if you ain't got works, you ain't saved. Now that ain't good English, but it's good preaching. You see, I'll be straight up with you. What concerns me is, you know, since we started the book of Revelation, man, you, you got to get here early to get a seat, you know? And, and that's real cool. Man, I'm, that, that's wonderful. You just got to be real careful that we don't want to get intrigued on Sunday and go out and live like hell and the devil Monday through Saturday. See, it, it just, it doesn't line up. But, but now listen, your works can't save you. But if you're saved, it'll work. But now this group in the tribulation period, though, it's different. You, you see the difference? They're not sealed. They don't have the same Holy Spirit sealing them that you have. They don't have the seal of the 144,000 marked in their forehead as God's personal possession and guaranteeing his personal protection on them. It, it's, a, it's a different group of people. And unless they endure unto the end, they will not be saved. Their robes will not be plunged into the blood of Jesus Christ and be made clean. It's not going to happen. But notice the next thing. Now that was the bulk of the message. From here we're going to be able to scoot, kind of. Okay? That's when they were saved. Notice next where they were standing. Where they were standing. And look at the middle of verse 9. It, it says, They stood before the throne and before the Lamb. Before the throne and before the Lamb, and, and you probably ought to jot a few things down here underneath that. I, I didn't have time to give you the blanks, but drop down to verse 14 again. Look, look at verse 14. The elder tells John that these are they which came out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Verse 15. Therefore are they, where are they? Before the throne of God. Okay, and this is, listen y'all, this is so significant. Okay, now the scene that John is seeing here, the, the, the scene is in the third heaven. You, you'll notice back in, in verse 11, look at it, it's the same exact description of the scene in the third heaven that John described back in chapter 4. It's the same exact thing. But notice in verse 11 here, that John says that as he looked there, there was an there was an outer circle around the throne that was made up of the angels. Do you see that? And then nearer to the throne, there's another circle. Okay, it's concentric circles. You got this circle out here, and it's, it's comprised of the angels. And then closer in, nearer to the throne, were the 24 elders. And then closer yet, were the four beasts. But, but now check it out. Look at it. Even closer yet were these white 
robed martyrs from the tribulation period. You know where they are? They were before the throne. I mean, hey y'all, you know what? They got the front row seats of heaven. You know what? You go to a concert. I mean, I don't know who you like. You know, here's Stephen Curtis Chapman in concert. You're there early. The guy says, hey, sit anywhere you want. Where are you going to go? Buddy, you get smack dab right in the middle, right on the front row, won't you? You, you got tickets to Broadway. Get there early. The guy says, hey, sit anywhere you want. Where are you going to go? You're going to get right, in, right there in the big smack dab middle of that, that thing. You're going to go to a sporting event. Sit anywhere you want to sit. You're going to go see the Chicago Bulls. Guys, where are you going to sit? You can get right behind that bench, right? Front row, buddy, right there. Go to church. Where do you want to go? I mean, you got to get here early to get the back seats, buddy. But now listen. When it comes to heaven... If you got a choice of where you're going to be, where are you going to choose? I'm, I'm serious. Where are you going to choose? And you're going to be just as close to that throne as you can possibly be. But that choice isn't up to you. But check this out. Here are these martyrs who came out of great tribulation, which Jesus himself said was the most horrendous period of time in the entire history of mankind and I want you to see this God gives to them the most prestigious place in heaven before his very throne check this out not behind it not to, to one side but before it right where they can can look up into the very face of the Holy Lamb of God seated on His throne and watch every single expression of His glorious countenance. You see, they took their stand for the Lord Jesus Christ in the face of the Antichrist in the last three and a half years of tribulation and as soon as He chopped their head off, they go from standing for Christ standing before him oh my goodness can you imagine that I mean one minute you know here you've got this dastardly antichrist and they throw you on the guillotine and whack and in the next second bang, you're right there beholding the Lamb of God and then notice next what they were saying what they were saying John says in verse 10 that they cried with a loud voice. Some folks around here say, you know, it's just, it's just too loud in there during the worship. You know, all we're trying to do is just break y'all in for heaven. Because it's going to be loud. It's going to be loud, I'm telling you. And, and here, here's this multitude, buddy, and, and I mean, they're going for it. They cannot keep their mouth shut. And they're crying with a loud voice, listen to them, 
salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. First of all, they praise God for His grace. You see, they did have to endure to the end. But they understand the source of their salvation and, their, and they begin to praise Him for His glorious grace in saving them, saying, salvation to our God. And then next they praise God for His government. They say, salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne. You see, you've got to realize that these people that John is seeing and hearing before the throne, they went from being on earth under the one world government of the Antichrist, where Revelation chapter 13 and verse 7 says that power was given unto him over all, listen to it, power was given unto him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. That's the kind of government that they have seen on the earth. I mean, they, they watched him sit on the throne over all of the earth. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 3 says that all of the world wondered after the beast. And according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and then in Matthew chapter 24, what we find is that in the midway point in the tribulation period, after three and a half years into the thing, the Antichrist is going to come into the temple in Jerusalem, and where is he heading? He's heading for a throne. He walks into the temple, and he sits on the throne reserved for God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, at his second coming. And you know what the Bible says kicks in at that point? The great tribulation period. That's what kicks the whole thing off. It's what Jesus called the abomination of desolation he walks into the temple in Jerusalem and he takes his seat on the throne and here are these people this multitude and they had come under the domination and devastation and destruction of the throne of the Antichrist on the earth and they go immediately from that having their head chopped off to being transported to the throne of God are able to behold that where God rules and reigns in His kingdom. They've seen the counterfeit kingdom of the Antichrist on the earth, and they're transported into the genuine kingdom in heaven. I mean, oh my goodness, what a difference. And no wonder when you hear them here, they're crying with a loud voice. And then notice next, they praise God for His gift. The end of verse 10 says, And unto the Lamb. Again, they know how they got there. You know what? They know how they got there. John the Baptist said in John chapter 1 and verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God which what? taketh away the sin of of the world. Listen, this crowd knows that they're not in heaven because they were willing to be martyred. They know that they're not there because they were counted as sheep for the slaughter. They know that they're not there because they endured to the end. They know that they're not there because they, they, they came through the great tribulation. 
They know that they're there because of the Lamb. They know it. And so they cry with a loud voice saying, Salvation unto the Lamb. And evidently, y'all, I mean, I'm up here preaching it and y'all are very dutifully listening. But I'm just telling you, I don't think we can really comprehend what that praise was really like because I want you to look at the next thing. Who they were stimulating. Who they were stimulating. Here they are. They're praising God with a loud voice in verse 10 and immediately verse 11 says, And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped God saying, Amen! You see, you don't like it loud, do you? Saying, Amen! Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. I mean, now, now check this out. Okay, here, here are the angels of heaven. And they ceaselessly encircle the throne. I mean, it ain't like they just got there and they're all just kind of caught up in the moment and the thrill of this thing and are just, you know, overwhelmed and start busting out and praise. Hey, y'all, they've been there for centuries. and I mean, thousands and thousands of years they, they've been there and their constant delight and ceaseless function is to worship God. And they've heard the worship of the 24 elders. And they've heard the worship of the four beasts. And I don't understand it. But when they see these victorious martyrs standing before the throne, clothed in robes that were made white by the blood of the Lamb, and they see them waving the palm branches in, in victory, and they hear these overcomers lift up their voices in worship, you know what it says? They're stimulated to, and they just, they just burst out in an unrehearsed, spontaneous worship of God themselves. You know what? I think one of the greatest privileges that God ever gives to us is to be able to, to say something or to do something that stimulates somebody else on this planet to worship. I mean, that's, that's an incredible thing. When God uses us in the life of another human being to cause them to worship God. But I mean, now, can you imagine your worship stimulating the very host of heaven? I mean, that's incredible. And, and, and notice first the posture of the angels. When you first see them in verse 11, they're standing, aren't they? When they see and they hear these tribulation saints, you know what they do? They assume the most comfortable position of any of God's created beings in genuine worship. You know where they get? They get on their faces. They fall before the throne on their faces. And the end of verse 11 says, and they worshiped God. I mean... They're just poured out before Him. Absolutely enthralled and overcome with what they're hearing and seeing. And listen to the praise 
of the angels, the praise of the angels. I mean, the, the tribulation saints have just been praising God the Father and the Lamb for their salvation. And, and then when the angels begin to lift their voices, they begin with a, a good, hearty, Amen. I mean, they're, they're hearing that praise and just filled. Amen. And you know what? We need to get a little more like the angels around here. Some of y'all, you're going to get yourself hurt. You know? You get that thing all bottled up inside of you, and you ought to just go ahead and say amen every once in a while. You see, the more you say amen, the shorter the message becomes. I know why y'all don't say amen. You're afraid it's going to make it longer, don't you? And you're probably right. But they say, amen. Now, now, now think about this. We know, we know from what the, Bible, what the Bible teaches about angels that they don't personally experience salvation, do they? But we know from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 12, that the salvation of man, you know what it says? Is something that that they desire to look into. You know what? The angels are just absolutely blown away that God loves us enough to save us. You do a real good job when you start getting blown away by that same thing. I mean, they, 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 they just desire to, to look into that. It intrigues them. And we know from Luke chapter 8 and verse 10, that there is joy, it says, in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repented. And again, this isn't one sinner that we're dealing with here, man. This is a great multitude which no man could number. So, I mean, hey, if they're having, you know, I mean, if it's a licks the red off their candy when one repents, I mean, just, just go figure when it's a multitude that no man can number. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, it says of the angels that they are his ministering spirit, spirits, listen to it, sent forth to minister for them who shall be the heirs of salvation. They're not the heirs of salvation themselves but they minister to those who would be the heirs of salvation. And you know what? They have been ministering to the heirs of salvation for centuries and centuries and centuries now. And folks, listen. This is the moment the angels have all been waiting for. Because you know what? Though we have such a hard time figuring this out, the angels know that the purpose of God has always been for all nations to be reached with the gospel. And they have watched that purpose go unfulfilled century after century after century and year after year after year and day after day 
after day and they have listened to sinful man who is desperately in need of the salvation of God and they've listened as man has blasphemed the holy name of their God. And now here is this multitude representing, listen, every people on the earth. And they hear that and they say, Amen. It's music to their ears, y'all. And they begin saying, no more blasphemy. Blessing. Blessing. And they watched as the earth year after year reproaches the Lord by their lives and by their words. And so they cry out, shouting, Glory! Glory! As if to, to say, here's what, you, here's what you've always deserved. Blessing. Glory. And they watched as man has turned up his nose at, at God's glorious plan for his salvation all the way down through the centuries. And, and they've listened as man has scoffed at God's plan, calling it foolish. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18 says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. In verse 24 of that same 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says that it is the wisdom of God. And here, in the presence of the angels, they're seeing it finally. No more foolishness. They're seeing the wisdom of God represented in the millions and millions and millions of recipients of His salvation. And the angels lift up their voice to God in praise, saying, Wisdom. And then they can't help but offer their thanksgiving. It says, and they honor Him, saying, Honor for His power and might and, and saving this incredible multitude of people that were coming out of the tribulation. You know, you know what's happened here? His strength has been made perfect in weakness. And when they see, when they, when they get all finished with their praise, I mean, they've seen the worship and they've heard the worship of this multitude. And they say, Amen. And then blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. And you know what? They get so blessed by their own praise. You know what they do? They say amen. Have you ever been so blessed by your own praise that you just kind of step back and go, Woo! Amen! I believe that! I believe that! <laughs> You wouldn't believe the amount of times that I say amen that y'all don't when I'm preaching. And I'm going along, and all of a sudden I'm like, I believe that. That's why it gets intense in here sometimes. You know why? It's my way of saying amen. Amen! And here, I mean, they're just so stoked by all of this whole deal that they sandwich that sevenfold description of their praise between two amens. And then that leads us to one final thing this morning. And that is why they were singled out. Why? 
they were singled out. I mean, check this out. The whole second half of this chapter is totally about this group. And the question is why? And the first reason is so they can be properly recognized. You see, when John looks at this group, and you see back in chapter 4, when he saw us, didn't have any problem recognizing us. He knew who we were. But he's standing there, and he's taking all of this in, and he's watching this, and he doesn't even know who these people are. Evidently, he's, you know, he's standing there looking like a, a, a mule looking at a new gate. You know, he just, he just got that, that dumb look on his face, you know? And, and so what happens is one of the elders comes up in verse 13. Okay, he's got this major question that he's working in his head. He's not asking it out loud, but the, the elder's going to answer it, right? And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? In other words, I mean, that, that's what you want to ask, isn't it? What's up, what's up with these people? Where did they, these people come from? The elder says this to John. John says to him in verse 14, Sir, thou knowest. In other words, sir, I'm absolutely clueless. But I'm sure you're not. I know you know who they are, and so the elder tells him, as we saw earlier, I'll tell you who they are, John. These are they which came out of great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And do you realize, folks, that that we're reading about a conversation that hasn't happened yet? <laughs> it happened, but it hasn't happened yet. And they're having a conversation about a group of people that are, that are presently living on this planet right now. Have you ever thought about that now? I mean, they're having a conversation about these people, and that group of people they're talking about are people that are alive on this planet right now, and you know what's true of that group of people this morning? Most of them have never heard the two words, Jesus Christ. I mean, that just, I, I don't know, I, I wish we were starting the message right now, <laughs> rather than trying to end this thing, but I'm telling you, this group of people that they're talking about, that are getting ready to die in the next several years, at this point, most of them never heard the two words, Jesus Christ, and I'll guarantee you this, none of them have ever heard the truth of the gospel proclaimed like you've heard it today. Never. You say, well, how do you know that? Because in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, what it says is that everybody who does have the opportunity of hearing the truth of God proclaimed, when they refuse it, You've sealed your eternal destiny, and you won't be one of this group, I promise you. You won't. You won't be one of that group. And you see, some of you, man, I'm thrilled that you're here, but you do need to understand something. Once you have heard the truth, you'll never be one of these tribulation saints. 
Because what the Bible says is you will be sent strong delusion by God himself and you will receive the lie, the mark of the Antichrist and your eternal destiny will be sealed. Yeah, I mean, you've got, to, you've got a lot of things to, to, to wade through. And I'm not trying to freak you out again. I'm just trying to tell you exactly what, what the Bible says. But none of them have ever even heard the gospel. But, but now listen, they will hear. They will hear because the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all nations as a witness. They will hear. And, and you know what else? They will respond. And when they're called upon to, in, to endure what they'll be called to endure for that next several years, stuff that no group of human beings has ever gone through in the entire history of mankind once they've done that God clears off a space right here in Revelation chapter 7 and he singles them out before they've ever even actually died to make sure that they're properly recognized John doesn't recognize them but he wants to make sure everybody for all eternity recognizes who that group is of people is and not only that they'll be singled out in that day so they can be properly rewarded properly rewarded and folks I'm telling you I don't I don't think we can fully comprehend the suffering that this group of Gentiles is gonna go through because they refuse the mark of the Antichrist and all that they'll go through just in leading up to that that refusal but you can be sure that God's gonna make it up to them now, don't are, are, you, are you guys going another page, or are you closing up on me? I'm almost done, okay? Look at verse 15. Therefore are they before the throne of God, and serve Him day and night in His temple. And again, that's the real temple, the temple in, in heaven. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. I mean, now... now, now track with me folks here's this group of people and this group of people they've never had the joy of experiencing the joy that you and I have in the church age you see according to 2nd Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16 we are the temple of the living God and you know what the verse goes on to say that God dwells in us and he walks in us right now I mean that, I'm not talking about this is our future glory y'all I'm talking about right now we are the temple of the living God and he dwells in us and he walks in us but you see this group in the tribulation period like we saw at the beginning they are not in Christ and it, it, the Lord Jesus Christ has never actually dwelt in them. They don't know anything about being a, a temple. And as Gentiles, listen, they couldn't have even gotten past the court of the Gentiles in the temple on the earth. I mean, there's a literal court of the Gentiles, and Gentiles couldn't go past that. But here they are in heaven, and they're in the innermost court, in the holiest place of the sanctuary with front row seats and they finally know the joy of God dwelling with them. And the scripture says and they will serve him day and night. Day 
and night. And you know what's weird? We are the temple. And He dwells in us. And some of you don't serve Him ten minutes in a week. I mean, if you're going to take me to the last 168 hours, show me your service for Christ. List it on a sheet of paper. What are you going to list? But because they are in the temple with the Lamb dwelling among them, they cannot help but serving Him day and night. And listen, during the reign of the Antichrist on the earth, refusing the mark of the beast, they couldn't remember they couldn't buy or sell. So before they had their heads chopped off, do you, do you understand that most of them would have been half-starved and famished because of a lack of thirst? In fact, some of them may have even, before they had the opportunity of having their heads chopped off, a lot of them may have died because of starvation or because of thirst. So God says in verse 16, They shall hunger no more. This is done. Neither thirst anymore. Verse 17. For the Lamb, which is in the midst of the throne, shall feed them. Not the angels. The angels ain't feeding them. The Lamb of God Himself serves them. Feeds them. And shall lead them unto living fountains of waters. And obviously during the tribulation, they'll lose their homes. They're going to be hunted down exactly like Hitler hunted down the Jews during the Holocaust. And they'll have no shelter. And would you listen to Revelation chapter 16 and verse 8? It tells us that during the great tribulation, the fourth angel will pour out his vial upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire and listen this is not a sealed group they're not under the divine protection of God and this is a group that is going to be affected by that so God says in the middle of verse 16 neither shall the sun light on them nor any heat you know what they'll be delivered from all limitations of life they'll be delivered from all of the afflictions of life in the end of verse 17 says and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and I mean folks listen do you understand with that group of people how many tears in that three and a half year period that group of people would have cried night after night after night they're hunted down they're starving they're listening to their kids cry out mommy daddy why where is our food where is our home and i'm telling you night after night after night after night they'll cry they'll cry out to god oh lord jesus how long how long how long and they'll finally Endure to the end and they will die. And God will feed them. He'll lead them to the waters. And he'll personally, again, he doesn't contract the angels, say, y'all deal with that. 
God himself shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Um, You know what? Sorry, it took so long to get to this point today. A little longer than, than normal. But oh, buddy, what a group of people. And what a God. What a great God. And you know what? That same great God, He is extending to you the offer of His grace. Now, now listen, listen so carefully. He is offering to you the grace that will save you, that will deliver you from all of this. You realize that we're living in a period of time that if you'll just, by faith, reach out and receive the message of the gospel that you're a sinner and you can't do anything about your sin and so God did everything on your behalf and all you got to do is just come to the point where you'll call upon his name and say, I'm a helpless, hopeless, lost sinner and I know I can't do anything about my condition so would you please forgive me? I yield to you my life. Would you come in and would you be my Lord and Savior? And do you realize that when you do that, you're sealed. And in just a couple of minutes or a couple hours or maybe a few days or maybe a few months, could be a few years, we don't know, a trumpet's going to sound and you will be transported into the very presence of God. Never have to deal with any of this stuff. Man, what a great God. What a gracious God. And he's extending his arms of love to you this morning. He wants to include you in that grace.